0: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for taking a listen to this episode of Ignite the Change. The intention of this podcast is, and always has been, to spread insight on the career of a therapist. So those that are in this field and those who plan to enter this field can be better and do better. So you will not only hear Tracy's story of becoming a therapist, despite challenges and family conflict, but you will also hear the urgency For therapists to use their voice and their platforms, no matter how big or small, against the violence and the genocidal attacks occurring in Gaza. In Tracy's words, we cannot sit this one out. Being a therapist is so much more than seeing clients, knowing the DSM, and treatment planning. It's about making real change in the communities in which we live. I encourage all of us to head to ceasefiretoday.com to sign petitions email Congress, and find protests near you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Ignite the Change, a podcast focused on the stories of mental health clinicians and how they found comfort in the therapist's chair. I'm so excited to be joined by someone that I've admired for some time. Tracy Vada Kamchari is a licensed therapist in New York, California, and Florida, She helps South Asian Americans who struggle with toxic guilt, shame, and cultural stress and trauma. She has had to work on her own people-pleasing anxiety and imposter syndrome to become a therapist and private practice owner. She hopes to continue to inspire future South Asian therapists. Tracy is currently taking on new clients in New York, California, and Florida. Please visit her website at thebadindiantherapist.com. Again, I'm so excited for us to be chatting today. Your content inspires me and you've used your platform for so much good, especially recently, um, as so many therapists have been silent during the genocidal attacks on Palestine. So I thank you for using your voice, um, and thank you for inspiring this brown girl to find comfort in this profession. I can't wait for us to talk about your career.
1: That means so much. And I just want to add, like, I'm not innocent. I'm not perfect either. You know, I, I am by no means leading this conversation Ooh about Palestine or anything that's happening in the world, anything that's happening in Congo or Sudan or Hawaii. I'm not leading any conversation about that, honestly. Like, could have spoken out earlier, just like the rest of us. And I just wanna say, like, there's no such thing as being the perfect activist. You don't have to be an activist. That's not what, that's not a profession. Mm
0: -hmm. It's not something
1: that's required of you to, you know, it's a responsibility that shouldn't really take up a lot of your energy. So like, don't think that you have to be the perfect activist to say something. Don't think that you have to even necessarily know the entire history of what's going on. The important thing is just to acknowledge it and use your platform to the best of your abilities. So. And
0: I know that so many of us appreciate you using your platform for that. Um again, excited to be chatting with you. I have looked at your content. I have followed you for some time, Tracy, I think since you had like maybe five, 600 followers. And so I, and now you're like, what, almost at 4,000. I mean, super exciting. And I can't wait to learn about how you, how you did it. Yeah. Um, I usually ask this question first, because I think it kind of is a springboard of where this entire conversation will go. And that is, where do you feel like your story of a therapist began?
1: Uh, This is a very important conversation because given what's happening, I've had to have like a coming back to myself moment a little bit about like, why am I doing all of this? Like, what is the reason why I'm doing all of this in the first place? And that's because I was working for some nonprofit community organizations and uh, my a university center that is about that that was about uh, domestic violence and sexual assaults, like centering mm-hmm. around like education and awareness around domestic violence and sexual assault, and often like the you know, program directors that I worked under at these organizations were very activist oriented, not just in terms of like sexual assault and domestic violence, but also in terms of like other social and political issues um, and uh, other issues surrounding gender-based violence too. It wasn't just about, you know, women. It wasn't just about uh, sexuality. It was It wasn't just about interpersonal violence for them, it was also just about violence all around the world. Um, And I think that uh, that kind of started building this framework for me to like care about the interpersonal too. And one of the program directors was somebody who had her master's in counseling. And she was an advocate that would go to court with survivors of sexual assault. And she focused on the interpersonal work. She wasn't somebody who, um, necessarily had, a, she wasn't a licensed therapist, but she had gotten her master's in counseling and she used the skills that she learned to kind of help people who have experienced sexual assault or domestic violence like get asked for what they need and get the support they need to go to court and get the resources that they need. And that's kind of how I started down this path. I was also working in residence life. I was I was a resident assistant. Also, I was an RA. Um, So that, too, you know, involved a lot of having to meet people where they are, inspire Mm -hmm. people to be the best for themselves. And that's when I'm like, you know what? Maybe I want to like be a college therapist. I was also, I went to therapy too around this time. That's when I kind of started. Um, So I was like, maybe I wanna be a college therapist. Of course that never came to fruition, but that's kind of how all of this started. So yeah, that's that's how I got into this. Of course my path has changed since then. Well, that's kind of what piqued my interest was just like, just learning to care about the world.
0: I, I want to relate this back to your upbringing. I mean, was were there helping professionals in in your family? Were there people in your family that cared about the greater good? Were, was there any family members um, that inspired you into this profession?
1: So no family members, to be honest, because mm-hmm. no family members inspired me. There were family members in my family who were nurses. Uh, my mom is a nurse, but I don't, to be honest, I'm not so sure if the way that the nurses in my family care for people is necessarily rooted in an authentic and genuine way of caring for people. I think that there's definitely some like self sacrifice, saviorism that my mom as a nurse, and a lot of like, I think that women in my family who are nurses, I think that there's a lot of that in there. There's also a lot of like this, like the respectability of like, oh, like, be a doctor, be a nurse, be a pharmacist, which are all like helping professions. But none of them, none of this is actually rooted in like the desire to really and truly like, advocate for a better world necessarily. I think that they they do want to help people, but they kind of see helping people as like I have to sacrifice my needs and well-being to help somebody. And to me that's just kind of, that seems more like self-fulfilling. The idea that I have to hurt myself to help others, you're not actually helping other people you're kind of trying to prove something to yourself or make yourself feel good by hurting yourself. And I have started to question that in recent years. And also even back then, I never really identified with that because I always kind of knew, my parents wanted me to be a pharmacist. I kind of always knew that this was never about helping people it was about impressing other people, right? It was about like respectability in the eyes of other Indian Americans, uh, namely other like Malayali Indian people, like
0: Mm -hmm.
1: the Malayali bubble, so to speak, impressing them uh, when you say like, I'm a pharmacist, right? Like it's just about the title at the end of the day. So I was like, I really don't have a passion for this. And like, if you really think that I was, that I was meant to like stand behind a counter and formulate pills all day and like stand on my feet all day, um, and not talk to people like <laughs> you, like, do you know me? <laughs> That's not who I am. Um, so I, I don't think I was really inspired by my family. I love them, but like, yes, the, the a long story short is yes, there were people in my family who were, from the helping professions from nurses in particular but like it didn't really do anything for me
0: (laughs) you (laughs) know it's funny because you and I have only had like a few conversations and I cannot imagine you at like a busy Walgreens pharmacy like with the little scapula or whatever they use like just counting pills, like pharmacy pharmacists do, great work. I'm not, right, you know, right. saying that, right? It's not easy like, work. Yeah, it's really not. I mean, like I have been, like a f- when I thought I was going to do medicine, I I was behind the pharmacy counter as a tag. Like my brain, I, I just yeah. couldn't.
1: I flunked organic chemistry, and well, even I didn't then, make I it to like...
0: organic chemistry. Like...
1: <laughs> and at that point, I was still telling people. When all the other RAs resident assistants I worked with they're like oh Tracy like what are you going to do after you graduate i'm like i'm going to be a pharmacist and they're like you don't really sound like you. Are enthusiastic <laughs> about that, but I was kind of like just telling myself that because that's right. what my parents kept suggesting and to this day, they will deny it they'll be like we never made you become a pharmacist we never told you, you have to become a pharmacist i'm like. You never said that they're right they're right they never said you have to be a pharmacist. But they're like, Tracy, choose pharmacy. Pharmacy is a good track. That persuasion created this expectation that I was just gonna follow what they did. They never said you have to. They're right. They never said. But the consistent persuasion and them repeating it over and over again, it sends a message. You wanted me. You wanted me to do this, right? And I did it because I, I did it because I thought that's what I wanted to until my junior year to realize actually no the fuck not tracy you just wanted to explore you wanted to explore your identity in college that's what you wanted to do you wanted to explore your options in college and now it's junior year and you don't know what the fuck you want to do so what is it that you want to do and i think at that point i realized actually no i don't care about pharmacy I, i care about people and that was when i changed my track to gender and women's gender and women's studies in particular and sociology
0: that's touch
1: on that too
0: so I was doing some snooping on your um website and I saw that you majored in that and I was like oh wow an Indian woman majoring in gender studies and in women's studies like that's okay let's okay I can't wait to dive deeper with Tracy on that yeah um did your parents know what that was? Did they understand the nuances? Like tell me more.
1: Uh they found out at graduation.
0: No they didn't. So what the announcer was like wow, like uh, it's on the diploma like how did they find yeah. out?
1: Uh uh my my siblings broke it to me their reaction specifically my dad's reaction. Uh let's just say that the graduation lunch that happened right after did not go well. Uh, my dad threw a fit. and he, he, I'm just putting that out there into the public. If you are an Indian American watching this and ashamed about any fights or arguments that you might have had with your parents, any kind of conflict that you might have had with your parents, I want you to know that when I graduated with my bachelor's degree in gender and women's studies and we went to a greek restaurant right after my dad threw a fit in the middle of the greek restaurant like like
0: raised voice and everything tracy
1: he didn't raise his voice but he basically like he just acted out he acted out but it was like i don't think it was kind that he didn't raise his voice to be honest he was basically muttering under his breath and he was really angry and he has a hard time controlling his anger he had a hard time controlling his anger and to be honest i thought he was really going to just like take the butter knife and just throw it at me in the middle of the greek restaurant so listen it's all said and done this this is the reality this let's be honest let's call out the black sheep that's let's, let's call let's call out the big elephant in the room okay this is the reality of growing up indian american our parents do not know frustration tolerance. They don't. They don't. And, you know, not blaming them, I'm not trying to paint them in a bad light. That is the reality. Our parents do not have great frustration tolerance, and that is because they've also gone through some shit, right? And we have to acknowledge that sometimes this is how conflict plays out in our families. It does. It doesn't make it okay but this is what happened. And I want you to know that if you are Indian American and you're thinking of becoming a therapist, if you are Maliali Indian American and you're thinking of becoming a therapist and you're listening to this, I want you to know that this happened to me. I almost thought I was gonna be homeless. Legit, like coming to New York City to get my master's in counseling, I thought I was gonna be homeless legitimately because I did not have- Because
0: of what you majored in and decided to do career-wise?
1: Yes. This is why I have massive student loans because this was a very real possibility, but I needed a way to make it happen. I needed a way to get my ass to New York and be able to pay rent, pay utilities, pay that deposit. I had to do what I had to do to get myself there because I I knew. And not to say that like my parents didn't eventually come around, they did. And not to say that my parents never made ever. Like now, I don't want to say that my parents never made an attempt to financially support me. There were times where they they did what they could, right? But my parents are they're working class, like they don't have a ton of money either. And that's why they were so dead set on like, me being a pharmacist and having this respectable career. But also they knew nothing about counseling psychology, and they most definitely knew nothing about gender and women's studies. So like, I want you to know, like, I went through it. I did it. I know it's not easy. I know it. But the stress to me was worth it. If it meant that I was going to get to the other side, the stress was worth it.
0: And this is why Tracy and I, I cannot say it enough. This is why I'm so happy that I'm talking to you because I actually, I, I feel like I started this podcast for me. Like, I feel like, you know, I've been trying to figure out how do I own that I'm in this profession, even though like I know my community and my family was very hesitant that I be in this profession. And so like to be talking to you, somebody who, I mean, oh my gosh, I can't imagine you've graduated. It should be a really exciting day for you. I can't even imagine how that must have felt. You mentioned a term, uh frustration tolerance can you speak more about that and how it relates to I guess the experience growing up in an Indian household
1: so frustration tolerance is your ability to respond well to frustration it's about how you respond to frustration and um it's not to say frustration is bad we all get frustrated I was frustrated yesterday and monday and sunday and like i like you're supposed to experience frustration and the key is your ability to tolerate any emotion the thing is there is no such thing as a bad or good emotion emotions are value neutral right like you are supposed to experience the diversity of emotions throughout your entire life they may not feel good like emotions like anxiety may not feel good but you are supposed to experience them because that means that you are a human a functioning human in this world you're supposed to experience emotions it's not about the feelings you have it's about how you respond to those feelings and when somebody has low frustration tolerance that means they do not know how to handle frustration they do not know how to cope with frustration in a healthy way and Oftentimes, this is an indicator of stressors in life that make it really hard to cope. And immigrant parents, just in general, like they've gone through a lot of shit, they've, they've gone through a lot of shit, moving and uprooting your life to live in a whole other country and in a, in a country that, you know, let's be honest, looked down on you because your parents are brown immigrants from some exotic quote unquote, exotic country far away. They've got these stereotypes in their brain of what that's supposed to be, right? It was not easy for our immigrant parents to come all the way over here. They've experienced a lot of discrimination in their life. And the idea of like, you can talk to someone about your negative emotions, or you can talk to somebody about how bad you feel. That concept is like, let's face it back then, therapy was a field. But even like white people were not going to therapy. Like the like let's be honest, like, if white people weren't going to therapy, did we really expect our immigrant parents to show up in America and be like, I'm gonna go to therapy? Absolutely not. So they didn't know how to cope with what's around them. Our parents had to figure it out for them. They had to learn how to cope. And their coping skills aren't necessarily the best sometimes, right? But they had to learn how to cope. Our parents had to figure it out on their own. And that sometimes means that figuring out on their own was not the best and (laughs) didn't really help them manage their anger or manage their frustration. So the only way that a lot of our parents know how to handle or cope with anger and frustration is to lash out is to take it out on someone else, right? That's how they cope with frustration. And it's understandable. It's not an excuse, but like that's what I mean by by low frustration tolerance. Our immigrant parents, for a lot of them, that's how they learn how to cope. Like if you've been through a lot of traumatic shit and you were never given the opportunity to really process that. That's how you cope. And it doesn't just apply to immigrant parents either. It applies to anybody who's been through some shit.
0: What would you say to a child of immigrants who wants to pursue something that their parents just are completely against or aren't supporting emotionally or financially? I mean, what? And and I will say that I think that, and maybe this is a shared experience, but from from What I know about my own personal little experience, I mean, as, as a child of immigrants, I think that you are raised to value your parents' opinion, no matter what, trust them no matter what. So what, what do we say to immigrant, you know, children, children of immigrants That are starting to have a voice of their own, starting to be an individual. What do we say?
1: If we're talking to someone who is like still a child and living under their parents' roof, I would say that your parents are doing the best with what they were taught. They're doing their best, but they're doing their best with what they were taught. And no parent is perfect. It's not an excuse for bad behavior, it's not. It's never an excuse. bad behavior we all have a responsibility to hold ourselves accountable it's an explanation though and i would say to somebody who is living under their parents roof still and it it again it really depends on like if they're a minor if they are somebody who is not financially independent yet that you you just you just gotta get out as soon as you can that's the reality and that's that's the reality for a lot of children of immigrant parents who are in abusive households is that the focus is on financial freedom that's why a lot of children of immigrant parents why financial freedom is important to them it's not just because you want to make your parents proud and be able to financially support them considering all of the sacrifices they had to make for you but it's also so that way you can get out of there and then have autonomy and agency autonomy and agency that your parents didn't have but also autonomy and agency from your parents so you can start taking care of yourself and start parenting yourself parenting yourself the way that you know the nurturance the emotional support that maybe we didn't get because our parents were very focused on physical safety our parents were very focused on providing physical needs right survival emotional needs not always the top of the list or maybe they did provide emotional needs but not in the way that was good for you so i would say that for a lot of children of immigrants who are like i'm stuck what do i do we all know that you can't heal from trauma that's ongoing you can't right if the trauma is still going on you can't you can't heal from it you have to get out of it first before there's any kind of healing. And, you know, I am grateful to a lot of nonprofit organizations that provide culturally competent family therapy. And, you know, there are services, you know, not necessarily like DCFS or ACS, but there are like family therapy options. But even that is a long shot for immigrant parents too, who may even be reluctant to sign up, even if it's free. So, the options yeah they they're scarce they are and i think the most affirming thing i can say to a child of immigrant parents who is still financially dependent and living under their roof still a minor is that like you are not crazy you are not wrong everything that you are feeling is true everything that you are believing is true this is wrong this is not normal and this is not cultural either. I don't care what anybody says, this is not cultural. What what does it say about our culture if we say that this is cultural? Is this what you really want our culture to be known for? Like this is not cultural. So if, you, if we know that this is not cultural, if we know this, if we know that this is not what we wanna be associated with, there has to be some kind of recognition to change. Sometimes our immigrant parents don't wanna change, right? But we know that you got to get out of there you are not wrong you are not crazy you are absolutely right you deserve safety your parents may never come around to that you, you got to rely on yourself a little bit here it's true doesn't mean you can't love up on your parents doesn't mean that you can't nurture your parents the way that you wish you were nurtured but you also got to start with nurturing yourself too sometimes you got to be your own guiding light
0: i loved every single word I mean, I'm really stuck on the fact that you mentioned that this is not cultural because I think that we have blamed the culture over and over and over again. And it allows this bad behavior to continue because we just say, oh, it's cultural. It's in our culture to be this way, to act this way, to treat people this way. And you
1: know what that is? What? That's internalized white supremacy.
0: Okay, break that down for me.
1: Who taught us? that our culture is inherently violent. Where did you get this idea from that this is just cultural? Colonialism did a number on us, okay? This was like 500 years of not just British, but also Portuguese, Dutch, all of it. It did it. screwed us the fuck up. It's a cop-out, first of all. Saying that domestic violence, abuse, all of that stuff, saying that, oh, it's just cultural? No, it's not. It's a cop-out. This is, this is a cop-out. This is an excuse. And it's also something that you tell yourself, so that way you never have to grow and do better. And I think that's a really, it's a huge disservice to yourself. You are literally saying that this is what Indian people are. To say that Indian people are inherently abusive and that it's just cultural, it's racist. It is. Even if it's coming from our own no we are not this is not who we are this is not what this this is what you want people to take away about our culture that this is what we are no we're not to even dig it even further like it is not uncommon for family households where there are financial struggles there are struggles with discrimination racism stressors of being overworked and underpaid trying to work hard to put food on the table yeah there's going to be child abuse and neglect because imagine like being an immigrant parent you work a job that takes advantage of you and assumes that like oh you know like these asian immigrants are such good worker bees let's just like pile on more work on them overworked underpaid who is watching the kids and if the kids act out what parent under those conditions what parent has the time to sit their kid down and be like you know sweetie i'm gonna ask that you don't do that because it makes me feel sad and it makes me feel mad no parent under those conditions has the time to sit and process feelings and give their child like the right kind of guidance and nurturance no parent under those conditions do
0: this is very off topic but this makes me think of gentle parenting yeah which is just we we know that there's another word for that and and i think now gentle p- parenting has you know become like the mainstream yeah. word
1: Not nothing against gentle parenting i do think gentle parenting is important but be, the ability to
0: practice that gently
1: parent yeah yes the ability yes. to gently parent it's a privilege that's we, what
0: i was just about to you say have, was... you have financial
1: privilege yes yeah
0: right
1: i'm gonna be honest like i am not a poor person by any means but i am somebody who at times is very overworked and very under stress and i don't have kids but i have bugaboo who is the cutest dog in the world? And sometimes I get mad at him. You know, I don't hit him, I don't abuse him or anything. But sometimes I raise my voice and tell him to shut the fuck up. Yeah, right. I do because I I, I do because I'm I'm about to lose. I'm one second away from losing my shit, just like everybody else in this world. And he's up, out here barking like there's there's no tomorrow. I'm gonna tell him shut the fuck up. There there's no excuse. There, there's no excuse. Right but oftentimes when we say that abuse is cultural what we're really trying to say is that abuse is understandable given the stressors that are a product of societal ills abuse is understandable given the stressors abuse is not cultural the word cultural is a cop out to mean something else right What we're trying to do when somebody says abuse is cultural, they're trying to create some kind of empathy and understanding for the parent or whoever is committing the abuse, but their empathy and who they end up putting responsibility on is displaced. To say that abuse is cultural, you are putting the responsibility and thus the reputation on the culture no this is not cultural this is what happens when you have immigrant parents under duress surviving in a western country trying to provide for their kids it's not it's not cultural and of course i'm not i don't doubt that like abuse happens in india too absolutely Mm -hmm. but that's also a product of societal ills, right like it's not cultural. This is all learned throughout history. Like this is not this is this is not cultural. Like what is Indian culture then? If that's what you're gonna say. I get, you know, let's make fun of the culture there here and there. Like absolutely I get it. It's we, we poke fun at Indian culture sometimes, but that doesn't mean it's cultural. So I just I I I resent that term a little bit. The stereotype is that brown men are inherently dangerous. Brown men are inherently animalistic. Brown men are abusive. Mm -hmm. So when you say that abuse is cultural, this leads people to think, oh, well, this is what brown men are known for.
0: Can I ask, I mean, I find it, I can't imagine how overwhelming it must have been that you moved to New York and feared homelessness. Can you a little bit more about that well i i first
1: through that process of just illinois is really not that far from new york it's not like i moved from california to new york i moved to a state that was two hours away by plane but the stress of having to work up the finances pay for the plane ticket come here with two suitcases get an apartment get an apartment with roommates make sure I have roommates all signing. I had three, four roommates, four roommates. We had to all sign this contract before August 1st, 2015. And then I had to have my deposit down and, uh, I had to have first month's rent. And, um, that, that process was very stressful. That summer between May of 2015 until August, 2015, I worked a temp job with a call center for some kind of like health program, like employee health program that companies outsource to for their employees. And it was the most demotivating job. Everyone there was an asshole, was super demotivating. Being a call center rep for that, holy shit, the amount of angry customers that Mm -hmm. would call me that I would have to answer to. Probably made the most money that I've ever made In my life working there and that was i think three hundred dollars every two weeks i can't remember Mm -hmm. i can't remember if it was three hundred dollars a week or it was three hundred dollars every two weeks but i had to be really conscientious about saving up every dollar i had the cheapest rent i think out of the five of my roommates (laughs) i had the the
0: city did you live in
1: We lived in west harlem which was actively gentrifying at that time but it had cheaper rent at the time now i'm not so sure i think now it's definitely very different um but we lived in west harlem which was not too far away from columbia and i did have student loans like a refund check that helped pay for like housing and such But that didn't kick in until like i don't know why new york is weird it would not kick in until mid september after the semester started so i had to find a way to just i was like just get that deposit get that first month's rent and then you don't have to worry about this anymore and i had i just had to have something in time for august so that way i could be prepared to start school i really thought First, when I had, now, when my parents had found out that um, I was getting this degree in gender and women's studies, I was really worried I was gonna get kicked out. And then two weeks before I left for New York, they gave me the silent treatment. They refused to talk to me. I think my dad felt guilty. And this is where I say, your parents come around, okay? 24 hours before my flight, they caved. They dropped me off at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. My mom got really sentimental because she knew, oh, my daughter's not gonna live in Chicago anymore. <laughs> She's gonna be in a whole <laughs> other city. And my dad actually gave me some money, which I was like, this is really sweet. Like I was, I I knew it meant a lot to him to give me money, money that he worked really hard for. So he did give me some money because he knew how much I was like working towards this that is also a privilege, right? So 24 hours before my flight, they dropped me off at the airport. I actually, believe it or not, I had to go to Facebook and reach out to friends from my gender and women's studies program at UIC to see if any of them would be willing to drop me off at the airport. I had a friend who she had reached out and she was like, I can drop you off at the airport if you need it. So sweet. Because I really did not think, and I couldn't afford I don't think I could have afforded an Uber at the time, to be honest. Or no, actually Uber was not accessible in the suburbs. I was like, you know, I need to find a way to just get my ass there. I actually thought about calling, I think I thought I thought about calling like a Chicago cab service, which like funny thing about cabs and like there, it's not like New York where there's like a formal taxi and limousine department that's run by the city government. Like Chicago does not have <laughs> such a formal department for that so i was like i i was prepared i was like they might overcharge me deliberately because there's no regulation and like there's no guarantee that they'll actually show up on time to pick me up and take me to the airport so i was i was really worried um but my parents caved they caved parents come around eventually they may come around begrudgingly but there is your parents have guilt too okay they feel bad also they do come around so i just wanted to add that and then there was another there was another part um where like the end of my first year of grad school it was like i couldn't even celebrate i couldn't even celebrate the end of my first year of grad school because i had to do summer classes in order to graduate on time and then I had to reapply for financial aid student loans mm-hmm. and I was like freaking out because I also had to move out of the apartment that we all had because the girls, the girls were not getting along <laughs> and we all had to move out. So I was like, shit, I have to go through this process again of finding a new New York apartment, like getting a credit check having to find like someone who would wanna be roommates with me, like people I would get along with, somewhere that's close to school where I wouldn't have to spend a lot of money. Like I was just like, oh my God, I am way in over my head. I have to do this again. And then now I've gotta wait for another refund check again to (laughs) just save up money again. I, it 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 was, it was like, I was reliving trauma but it wasn't that bad actually it was not that bad because having to go through the experience of finding another apartment in new york i think i did an acknowledgement i didn't acknowledge it at the time but i was reliving the emotional experience that came with having to move to new york again and having to move to new york the first time and i think i had to reassure myself well you know what tracy now it's different because you're actually in New York this time. You're not out of state looking for an apartment. You are like in the area where you plan to live. So it's not like you got to get a plane ticket and arrange times to meet and like play the waiting game. You could actually do this now. So I think for me, it was a very stressful period because I was like, when is this refund check going to come? I actually did think I was going to be homeless at that time, but it was not that bad. I think it was definitely just like this fear of like, I'm going to, I'm going to lose everything. That, that, that's, the, that's the scarcity mindset, right? Like, you know, I worked really hard to get here and at any given moment I could lose it all. I, I didn't really have support to do something that was completely different, but I had to like reassure myself, Tracy, you got to get out of this. You got to, you got to, you got to do it. You got like, to, it, it's, it's different this time. You can do it. Um, And something that I will say that my mom has said to me not too long ago, um, this is probably about like three years ago, can't remember what the situation was. I I don't remember. I think it was when I had to change jobs or I had left a job for another job. My mom said, this is 2018, she was like, you can get yourself out of this. You took yourself all the way to New York on your own. Like, my mom acknowledged this, which is wild. You got yourself to New York. You got yourself this far. You took yourself to New York on your own. If you can do that, you can get through this. That's what my mom said. My mom said that to me. She said, if if you you got yourself to New York, you did that by yourself, you can do this too. My mom said that
0: isn't that crazy the growth of our parents right hear that from
1: my mom oh my god that meant so much because you know something my parents love to say we raised you we brought you up to this level they kind of love to take credit which you know, they deserve to take credit, but you did not support everything that I had to do on my own, let's be real. And I feel like that acknowledgement from my mom was like, you did this, you you got yourself to New York, you did this yourself, if you can go through that, you can go through this. That was a sweet thing to hear from her, an encouraging thing to hear from mom.
0: Oh, I would have been in tears if that was yeah. me. Yeah. Are your parents supportive now? you have this amazing social media presence. you I mean'm I feel like I'm in your office right now. This is you have your own practice. How are they now with you and uh, your decision?
1: I think they're proud of me, but the way that they express their pride is you could do more. You could do more because I think mm-hmm. it's also like they know I'm self-employed and they know I work really hard. So they're also constantly fearing that, like, this is going to fail at any given moment, which always a possibility when you're self-employed. Mm-hmm. But my dad, he's creeped on my website. and you know how much I charge for therapy? And last time I went home, he's like, Tracy, how much do you make? How many clients do you see a week? No, it was how many clients do you see a week? Because he's doing the mental math. I don't know. I, I don't try to see more than, like, 15 to 20 clients a week. I try not to do more than that and he's like that's it that's all you make you should be making 500 half a million a year and I almost spit out <laughs> I spit out whatever I was drinking I'm like you expect me to see back-to-back clients I told my dad no I can first of all I don't think it's possible for any therapist really to make let's be honest it's not possible for any therapist to make half a million a year unless they are offering some kind of course offer, or some, some kind of like passive income revenue, okay. right? To be honest, it is not possible. If, if you don't have passive income revenue, if you don't have any kind of additional offerings outside of therapy, uh, it is not possible for a therapist to make that much money. It's not. You, you got to have some kind of additional offering or something else that you're doing on the side. Um, so I think my dad's logic is like, you shouldn't be seeing... Fifteen to twenty clients. You should be seeing more clients, and I had to tell him, no, that's actually really on un- That that's how like, that's how bad therapy happens, right? Is like when therapists burn themselves out from seeing too many clients. I ha- I could not find the best way to explain that to him, but I'm like, I had to tell him like therapists aren't supposed to see that many clients in a week. You know, we're not really supposed to see a ton of clients because when you see too many clients, you forget like details, or you're not able to like plan what you're going to say, or you're not able to kind of like write down like all of the things you're going to work on them with how you're going to say it, you know, every, every client session that you have, you have to really plan what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, what problem you're going to address, how you're going to address it. You have to think about it on a very individual level. I I couldn't find the best way to explain it to him, but like his logic is like, oh, you just talk to people, right? You talk to people.
0: You and give you people talk. advice.
1: Yeah, you give people advice, and then you just charge them hundreds of dollars. Like, right. no, <laughs> that's not that's not how any of this works.
0: Like, I think it's really challenging. I think people don't talk about this enough, and I'm really happy that you're bringing it up. How do you explain what we do to immigrant parents? Right, because it's like. Like, it's such like, it's a very foreign concept for a lot of, a lot of our parents. What, what is therapy? I mean, how, how do we explain that to them?
1: If I can be frank, I, I don't really explain it to mom and dad (laughs) because they think like there was a time and I think they still, they're still very dead set on this, um, where they were like, come back home and work in Illinois, you can work for DCFS. I think at one point, yeah, one point my dad forwarded me an application for a position to be a caseworker, but I I could not explain to him. It was a caseworker position at DCFS. And he's like, I know an Indian guy who's a department head of DCFS. You know, he can get you a job there. And I had to explain to him like, dad, you know, my training is not as a caseworker my training is like different from casework you know we talk about different things i i don't fill out government forms but like i think they still really don't know but you know my my i had a cousin who when i visited them once um she had like she had a kind of explained it to her mom who is my dad's older sister in a way i can't even remember but she. She was like very elementary, very elementary about it with her mom and my aunt just kind of like sat there and took it in and granted my aunt is a grandmother now. She's got her grandkids. Her kids are married. And I feel like at that point, suddenly parents are willing to like, listen to whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Like at, At that point, suddenly everything you have to say is valid. Suddenly they listen right they may ask for more shit. they may ask like when are you gonna get another kid when are you gonna do this when are you gonna do that but suddenly they start to take you a little bit more seriously but like she was able to kind of break it down in a way that they could understand i'm forgetting the words but like my aunt just kind of like took it in like she like she stayed silent and she actually nodded her head and i even told them can you talk to dad i was like can you please talk to dad because he needs to, he needs to know i i i don't know how i would say it um there was a point in time where I was talking to dad about, you know, his mom's, my grandmother's story. um, And how my uncle had died. And he had recited everything that happened. And he likes to go on tangents. And he, he likes to rant. He is somebody who, for a long time, and probably still thinks that therapy is not a good career. But he just sat there and just like ranted not ranted but just like went on a tangent and rambled for a really long time and then he got emotional he cried and he continued to talk about it talk about it and then suddenly like an hour or an hour and a half later so he's like you know that actually made me feel better i'm i'm glad i talked about that you know Aww. for some reason i feel better and he was not under the gut he, it did not, it, ne- it never registered to him that this is therapeutic it, n- it never registered to him that this is emotional labor, that this is therapy wow. It never registered to him ever. Right. The, the, the fact that he got to openly talk about the things that made him feel sad about mm-hmm. his mother and his brother. Mm-hmm. And I didn't say anything. We just let him talk for an hour and a half. Which is usually the case whenever he wants to give us you know preach or give us like advice or whenever he decides to lecture right when he lectures us we we let him go on for hours and hours and hours right but this was not a lecture this was him sharing his life story his emotions and he didn't realize it he didn't realize it was therapeutic no insight whatsoever that this is what therapy is okay at the end of his hour and a half ramble about the grief of his mother and his un- and his brother, right? Mm-hmm. After an hour and a half of him processing his grief, he said, wow, I'm really glad I talked about that with you guys, because it wasn't just me there. It was also my mom and my, my siblings were also in the living room. Wow, I'm really glad I got that off my chest. I'm really glad I talked about that with you guys. You know, for some reason I feel better. Absolutely no insight that this is what therapy is about. Still, to this day, does not know that this is what therapy is about. To this day, does not know. But, like, I think that it it doesn't, you know what? Emotional labor doesn't always have to be therapy either. But I think Mm -hmm. that, like, this is how you plant seeds with your parents. And I think maybe somewhere along the way, my dad has kind of come around to thinking, like, oh, actually, like, therapy might not be a bad field like it might there was one time where like he had said like oh you know actually like counseling is a good field your mom was telling me that all the crazy people come to the hospital now so like (laughs) i'm like oh god God. (laughs) it's just levels there's levels to this um there's levels there's there's levels we're working there we're working but The goal, I think when it comes to your immigrant parents and educating them about therapy and mental health, the goal is not for them to get them to change their opinion. The goal is not for them to even come around too quickly. They will come around eventually. It takes time. Mm -hmm. My parents are still coming around, but now they're a little bit more like, okay, like this is actually going well for Tracy. So maybe it's not that bad. They're coming around. They truly are coming around but it takes time and the goal is to plant seeds you have to kind of like meet your parents literally meet your parents where they're at and sometimes that means listening to their life story um something i actually thought about to be honest was you know have you ever heard of like that those life story books that they have that they send out there's this thing i forgot the i forgot the website but like you basically, uh, they'll send an email to your parents. I I forgot what it was, but it's some kind of service where like your parents like fill out information about their life story.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Significant moments in their lives. And then it's written as a book that your parents can then read. I think it's really sweet. Oh,
0: that's so cute. I think
1: sometimes that's like a really good way to kind of like educate our immigrant parents on like this is therapeutic. Like, this is what therapy is about. And like, not to say that there, your parents are going to suddenly start going to therapy, you know, and Yeah. <laughs> but they may have an understanding of like, oh, like, this is what you do. Like, yes, you know, <laughs> like...
0: I think you're bringing up such a good point too here because it is, like you're saying, planting seeds. It's a fine dance. And also, and maybe maybe I'm wrong with this, but I think it's offering a little bit of grace to your parents, right? That they're just not, they may not be where you want them to be, but that doesn't mean that they can't take steps or won't take steps to maybe get closer to where you want them to be. Right.
1: right. Can
0: I ask Tracy, you know, kind of going a little off off topic, you know, as an indian woman who has the presence that you do have on social media you have your own business what do you feel needs to change in the world of private practice or and or the world of providers that are south asian in this therapy space what what needs to change in your opinion
1: you know gosh oh my god i this is something that i've been feeling i'm sure many people have been feeling since October, since like maybe forever um, for South Asian therapists. And when I say South Asian therapists, I am including any therapist of the South Asian diaspora who may be living in the US, in the UK, in Canada, Australia, India, Thailand. This applies to all therapists who identify as South Asian to some capacity, whether you are mixed, or you're, you know, Indo-Caribbean does not matter. Okay. This applies to everyone. Stop seeing each other as competition. Start networking with each other. This is, this is the thing. You've got some really successful, like extremely, extremely successful South Asian therapists who have made it really big, but they are so unwilling to share their advice, tips, suggestions, to other South Asian therapists who also wanna make it big because they are afraid, oh, if another South Asian therapist makes it big, there goes my referral source, There, there goes my income. How is that helping South Asian Americans who are looking for a therapist who's a good fit for them? Because chances are, if you are a very successful South Asian therapist, you have gotten more than one referral from a client who was also South Asian American, but was definitely not a good fit for you. You knew you could not work with them. You knew you would be doing them a disservice and that they ultimately were not a good fit for what you could offer. So why in the hell would you take on this client out of fear that, oh my God, you know, no one else is going to help them and I need the money when really you could refer them to another south asian therapist who's a better fit for them who that client could really heal from and then you no longer have to feel like you need to take on clients who aren't a good fit for you like why would you why would you do that like why isolate yourself out of fear of losing referrals especially if you're getting referrals from clients who share similar cultural backgrounds but aren't necessarily a good fit in terms of interpersonal therapist-client relationship, treatment, conditions, values. Like why, why would you do that to yourself out of fear? Like other South Asian therapists are not your competition. South Asian therapists who charge more than you are not your competition. South Asian therapists who charge less than you are not your competition. South Asian therapists who are in network with insurance are not your competition. South Asian therapists who are fully out of pocket are not your competition. We all need each other because that way, when there's a client who isn't a good fit for us, we can still help them by getting them to someone who can actually work with them. So, I think that it's important that we have more South Asian therapists who have more of an online presence. And the other part I just want to say to South Asian therapists is that like, no client cares if you have perfectly oiled straight hair. No (laughs) client cares if your eyebrows are perfectly threaded. No client cares how light or how dark Your skin is. No client cares if you are a size two or a size 3XL. Clients do not give a shit about what you look like so long as they know that you can help them. So please, for the love of God, show up on social media or on the internet in some capacity. In some capacity. Like it doesn't have to be Instagram, it doesn't have to be TikTok. Can you get a website? Can you get some headshots, please? Like no client cares about what you look like truly and you I mean you can't ask my clients but if you knew my clients they would not care i come to sessions sometimes with my hair in a mess i've got like five chin hairs that are super thick okay if you if you are a brown girl you know we got to shave The face I shave my stomach, I have a mustache every week. Yeah, literally like I've often come to session with like there, there are really thick hairs coming out here. There's a unibrow going on like my clients do not care that is not what they pay for, and that is not why they came to me. They came to see you because of who you are, what you have to offer and, most importantly. Your personality, your personhood, are you relatable? That's all they fucking care about. So stop thinking that, oh, I can't show up on social media because, you know, my skin's too dark and I don't look like that perfect Indian girl over there who her hair's always perfectly intact and she's got makeup on. No, like you, clients don't care about that. And if a client did care about that, you probably couldn't do good work with them because they are stuck in the perfectionism anxiety and they're not (laughs) willing to get out of it. So clients don't care. They just want to know, can you help me? And do I like you? Do you seem relatable? That's really all they care about. Okay. So the two things I want South Asian therapists in this field to take away is that other South Asian therapists are not your competition, and you do not have to be perfect to show up on social media. Get over yourself, because there are people who really need you.
0: Le- legit! Legit! I you're understand- right! You're right! You know, I to post something on social media right now with my face. I am... You're right. You're right. And I, I don't know... I mean, we can probably talk another hour or two about this. I don't know where this comes... I have an idea of where this comes from where as as South Asians we tend to be very competitive with each other we tend to care about are we the perfect you know perfect Indian girl perfect brown girl but it 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 has no room in this profession It really I mean our our clients, like you said, don't care
1: and then in terms of the second part of your question <sighs> this is such a big thing. What needs to change in our field? I wrote it down because I'm like, I know I'm going to forget, but this is yeah. important. What our community needs to know about entering this field or what needs to change in our field. One, you don't have to go through this alone. Two, just like how your life belongs to you. Um, there's, there's someone uh, that you should follow on Instagram. Um, her name is The Private Practice Pro, Kelly Stevens. Yes. Yes. Kelly Stevens said this, She said your practice belongs to you, your career is what you make of it, you have to live with your career for the rest of your life. You do only you, you are the only person that has to deal with the consequences of your career for the rest of your life. Your career is what you make of it, your career belongs to you, other people are going to tell you what they think you should be doing. My dad is going to tell me, come back home and work for DCFS. Right. Other people are going to tell you what they think you should be doing with your degree, but that is entirely up to you. Your career belongs to you. The other part, just like the biggest part, I think that I wish could change in our field is that like, you know, we need to stop pitting therapists against clients and clients against therapists. I think, I think that in the pursuit of affordable mental health care, There are a lot of insurance companies and CEOs of these mental health companies, just read between the lines, who are going to sell to vulnerable clients that therapists who charge what they charge for therapy are greedy and selfish. These are people, CEOs of insurance companies and these mental health companies who are looking to make a profit off of underpaying therapists and make a profit off of vulnerable client populations who need care right mm. and i think that what needs to change in our field is this idea that it's therapist versus client it is not therapist versus client i believe that we could live in a world where a uh, client have affordable and accessible mental health care and therapists get paid very well to be great therapists run their practices and take care of themselves and their family and live good lives i don't think those things are mutually exclusive and i think therapists have an obligation not to lower their fees that's a band-aid not a solution but therapists have an obligation a social responsibility to fight for change we have an obligation to fight for change therapists if you're listening to me i am not saying you have to lower your fee i am not saying That you have to decrease your income to prove that you are a good therapist. I am not saying that. I am saying that you are worth your fee and your clients, people we serve are deserving of affordable care. So we all have an obligation to fight. We all have an obligation to social responsibility. We all have an obligation to fight for our government to take care of our people. The system is not broken. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to. So if you're a therapist and you're listening and you're sick of having to pay damn near almost 40% of your income in taxes as a self-employed person for it to go to killing innocent civilians around the world and giving other countries universal health care where other countries can pay their therapists well, but not you, your fee for service. So you have to be a gig worker. If you're a therapist and you're sick and tired of that, you have a social responsibility to fight for what's good for you and what's good for your clients. Because we know we're not supposed to be gig workers. We're not, we're not supposed to be gig workers. This is tough. And the people who should be paying you your fee are not paying you. They're paying for destruction and violence, creating trauma that you are expected to heal. How fucked up is that? So if there's anything that really needs to change in our field is this idea that therapists, we just get to sit this one out. No, we don't. We don't get to sit this out. We have to fight. We have a social responsibility
0: to Thank you. <laughs> that it was a rant. Oh, no, I, I loved every moment speaking to you. I really did. And I am so, I feel so happy that I got to chat with you and learn from you and i think that you're an incredible person and i think more people need to follow you i really you. do
1: you know it's not me it's not i don't, I don't want to make this about me it's I, I i'm glad that you're inspired and that i inspire people and I, I i plan to do something about that one day eventually but it's it's not about me it's about greater good you know it shouldn't have to come from me people shouldn't have to listen to me to feel this like I'm just ashamed that not enough therapists are saying this because I think therapists are afraid that if I if if they I think there are therapists who are afraid that if they fight for this that means they have to get paid less no Mm -hmm. it does not mean you have to get paid less I don't think that's the answer we all know that when therapists are underpaid they drop out of the field and then this creates a bigger mental health shortage Mm -hmm. right like there's already a therapist shortage right? And we know that underpaying therapists leads to more turnover because of more burnout, right? Therapists are overworked and underpaid. They end up burning out, they end up dropping out of the field and entering other career fields where they get to pay their bills. This is the same thing happening with teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. teachers who are bright eyed and bushy tailed enter the field, they're overworked and underpaid, They drop out and then they go be a bartender at like a bar where they're getting paid $2,000 a week in tips. Telling people who give emotional labor for a living that they should lower their fees to solve a problem, that is not the solution. That's just going to make the problem worse, right? Of course, we need affordable mental health care. We need affordable care in general. No one should have to pay a million dollars to give birth in this country that's ridiculous but but being in debt a million dollars to go into labor and delivery that no absolutely not that's ridiculous right that should not happen at all the solution to that problem is not underpaying healthcare providers it's not because when you do that it's just going to lead to more burnout and more providers dropping out of the field, which means fewer providers. When there's a huge demand, there's a huge need. We absolutely have the money. We absolutely have the money to pay our provider as well. We need to stop seeing therapists and clients, healthcare providers and patients as enemies. We are not enemies. We are in this together and we have to fight. <laughs> there's We can't sit this one out.
0: Can I ask how, you know, and i and I want to be mindful of your time. But how does one fight, right? Like, do we post on social media? do we um is are there certain petitions that we can sign what are what are the things that you know and and you know, if you can just share that with the audience so then they can you know start signing or start saying things or uh they're advocating. I think-
1: I think there's ceasefiretoday.org it's either ceasefiretoday.org or ceasefiretoday.com i can't remember um which one it was um but you know how i said earlier how there's you know i'm not a perfect activist i don't expect anyone to be a perfect activist activism is not a profession you know how i said that right um there there's no such thing as a perfect therapist either and there's no one right thing that you could do right now you just do what you know how to do best which is listen listen and support mm-hmm. so there are accounts to follow i think um there's like motaz azaza yeah. Biplastia. um there are there are so many th- other therapists that you could also be following too i am not the one to be honest um gg's therapy world yeah. Malouf. there are they're so great ma- yeah they're great like listen just listen right if you can use your platform for good and post even better if you can't i understand but you don't get this you don't get to sit this one out and not educate Mm-mm. you, you Mm-mm. should you should we all we all have a responsibility to do something it doesn't mean that we have to do everything but we have to do something
0: thank you yeah. thank you so much i i was hesitant to talk to anyone really on on this podcast given what is happening in Palestine and I'm I'm so happy that you you made sure to to bring importance to it even on this platform so thank you Tracy thank you again for listening to this episode of ignite the change we also thank Tracy once again for coming on this podcast and for shining a light on so many parts of being a therapist and the journey that one can take to becoming a therapist. Please feel free to follow Tracy on various social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram at The Bad Indian Therapist. Or you can also visit her website at TheBadIndianTherapist.com to learn more about her and all that she has to offer.